Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Happy Monday, I've said before you can have happy Mondays. Those are things, but they're definitely things when your Denver Nuggets are on the cusp of making the NBA Finals for the first time in their history since they were founded in 1967. Sean Drotar with you. Sandy Clough on my left. Danny Bailey, Andrew Detmer in the booth making everything work. You can catch us, of course, uh, not only over the air as you are right now at 91, uh, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3, but also milehighsports.com. You can listen or watch or on the free Mile High Sports app as well. Thanks to everybody listening and however you are doing it. We try to bring you everything in the most convenient way to get it to you. And the Nuggets find themselves in a strange spot, Sandy, so far as that no team. We've, we've, we've seen the numbers. 149 times the team has gone up 3-0 in the NBA playoffs. 149 times that team has advanced. 91 out of those 141 times, 49 times, it's been a sweep. So roughly two-thirds of the time when you're up 3-0, it ends up being a sweep. And I don't have a feel for this yet. You're talking about two potential Hall of Famers, not potential, lock Hall of Famers, in LeBron James and Anthony Davis. You're talking about a player that's impressive in in Austin Reeves, who I think has been really, really good. There are guys with pride. At the same time, especially when you're a 38-year-old LeBron James who wants to finish his career playing with the son at least two years from now. When you're Anthony Davis, who's 31, sometimes looking like he's going on 38 as, a, as well, given his injury background. Sometimes guys make, we hear it sometimes in the NFL, business decisions, right? And if you're LeBron James and if you're Anthony Davis, or you want to go all out, do you want to risk getting hurt in what might be the last game of the year? in a situation where you realize you are definitely not the better team and you're not about to win four straight, I don't know. So could you see the Lakers really tighten up and play with a lot of pride and maybe even win tonight's game? You could. Could you see something like we saw in the Easter Conference Finals yesterday where Boston just decided to pack it in? I think you could also see that tonight. I think that's a distinct possibility, Sandy. I would hope the Lakers should have a little more gumption than that. Um, Anthony Davis, I'm not sure of uh lebron only has so much to give and just watching lebron uh, the other night uh i admire him uh respect him as much as i ever have uh for clearly playing hurt and doing what he can but there are only so many things that he can do when for at least two of the three games, and I say at least because for me it's all three, scoring 40 points and getting completely dominated is a rare thing in the NBA or in any form of basketball. You can score 40 points and 10 rebounds and still get dominated. Maybe that's a sign of Nikola Jokic being great more than it is a sign of Anthony Davis being a guy who just put some, some nice box score numbers. Um, Over the years, I've learned that if you just look at box score numbers, you don't always get, sometimes you do, you don't always get a sense of who a player is and what that player is about. I can give you innumerable 
examples, and I went through some of them over the weekend just to satisfy my curiosity. I can look at a box score and see that a fellow from back in the 60s named Walt Bellamy played playoff series in consecutive years against Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain in 1967 and 1968. And in most of those games, if you just looked at the box score, you'd say Wilt Chamberlain's a good passer and Bill Russell blocks a few shots and gets a few rebounds. Other than that, Walt Bellamy's a better player than either one of them. Box scorers can fool you. Yeah. Players can be not nearly as good as they seem, according to the box score. I think a fellow like Austin Reeves sometimes is better than his box score numbers suggest, and his box score numbers have been pretty good in this series. I think the Nuggets are an example of a team, and Jokic, a player, for all the triple-doubles, he's better than his box score numbers show. Mm -hmm. That was true in game one. Even though the guy he was, quote-unquote, guarding, had 40 points and 10 rebounds. He was the dominant player in the game. Many of the analysts, not all, but many, both in-game and in-studio, if they watch the games, they don't understand what they're watching, and they go by box score numbers. And, you know, I have charts. I can do that, too. I can look at box score numbers, but what I do is I watch the games, especially playoff games, from start to finish. And anybody who tells me that Anthony Davis, whether he's a Hall of Famer or not, belongs in the same class as Nikola Jokic, is the same person who would have told me 56 years ago that Walt Bellamy was in the same class as Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. Look at the box score. Right. Who cares who won? Look at the box score. Bellamy's got 20 points and 24 rebounds. Russell's got six points and 20 rebounds. Don't tell me about it. Bellamy's better. You've got to do more than look at the box scores. The box scores of late, however, if you take the last 10 games that these guys have played against each other, I think do illustrate that. Anthony Davis has averaged 22.2 points, 10.4 boards, 2.9 assists. That includes, of course, the performances that we've seen in these playoffs. Nikola Jokic averages 26.6. That's better. 13.4 rebounds. That's better. 8.4 assists. That's better. Yeah. But I mean, but across the board, no, I, better. I, I, I understand. And that's but even not what the box score says. that much. And to me, maybe you make the Hall of Fame. I don't know. I, I don't think it's a slam dunk that Anthony Davis makes the Hall of Fame. Not every player wins a championship uh, is in the Hall of Fame. True. Certainly. And people who win or are part of multiple championship teams also aren't in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Brian Shaw, when he was the coach here, used to brag about all the championship teams he was on. And mm-hmm. Anthony uh, and, and Andre Miller would reply, you were sitting in the back of the bus playing cards. You weren't playing on those championship teams. You were just on them. I mean, he's he- and Miller was exactly right about Brian Shaw. Yeah, he was. He was exactly right. Anthony Davis is going to make all the other 
Exactly. He's an eight-time All-Star. He's won the, the, the title. He's four-time All-NBA first team. He's led the league in blocks three times. He's going to make it. But you're right. When we're talking about you can put these guys head-to-head, you can put the accomplishments together, you can put the fact that Anthony Davis, with all of his accomplishments, uh, had to move to win a title, had to well, leave the team he was on to that, win a title and right. join another team. And you know what? Nikola Jokic I more is respect. having it built around him. I, I, I more respect for Bam Adebayo. Like he's 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 a he's a better player. You know why? Because he does more to help his team win than Anthony Davis does. And the Lakers just happen to be a team right now that needs Anthony Davis to play well in order to win. I'm not sure that was as much of the case in 2020 in the bubble. Because LeBron was three was, years it, younger yeah. and he could carry more of the load, and he was the signature star. He didn't move to play with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis moved so he could play with LeBron. Correct. You still hear Kyrie Irving, who won a championship with LeBron, saying here and there, boy, I'd like to play for the Lakers and play with LeBron again. There's one problem with that. The Lakers want no part of him. He's just a more talented version of D'Angelo Russell. That's all. He's the same cancer on a team that D'Angelo Russell's a cancer on a team. Can you imagine a guy playing as badly as D'Angelo Russell has played in this series, and he gets at least twenty minutes in every game because they're afraid they're Whether afraid he plays well to or bench not. him because the the problems that would then linger in the locker room. Well, why not just bench him and then get rid of him? Oh, then yeah, and then get you might rid do of that him tonight. You might have an opportunity to do it tonight because there, there's not much to lose if you're the Lakers. It really has been fascinating to learn about that. And I'm, I'm glad he you was minus that up. twelve in twenty minutes. The there other have night. been so it's many. It's hard folks. to be it, as a starter. It's hard to be that bad. And I know you'll give me some Boston Celtics who are worse. <laughs> and I might agree with you. Uh, yeah, I might agree with you bad. on that. Uh, but you know something. I, I, I've been reading a lot about what team means uh, over the weekend, and it, it, there, there was always you, you remember this uh, going back uh, Tex Winter and Michael Jordan and the Last Dance. Uh, it was brought out and many times. It was documented over the years, of, uh, kind of the ongoing conversation they would have. And uh, Tex Winter would tell Jordan, there's no I in team. And Jordan's response would be, yeah, but there is in win. Right. This is what happens when you get coy with your little catchphrase. Well, everyone's got a computer. Oh, okay. One. You can come back with that. But the Bulls didn't win until... Michael Jordan trusted his teammates. Correct. But you know what? His teammates had to prove that they were trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And Phil Jackson helped convince Michael Jordan that they were. But Michael Jordan had to be convinced on his own. And occasionally he went off on teammates, as he emotionally described in the last dance at one point. Brought him to tears, the notion that to this day, there were players who didn't like him, didn't appreciate what he did in occasionally admonishing them, and perhaps there's a stronger word than admonishing for what Michael Jordan did. But part of earning Michael Jordan's trust was standing up to Michael Jordan. And if you could stand up to Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan figured you could stand up to a lot of pressure. And when Steve Kerr stood up to Michael Jordan and fought him 
literally, Steve Kerr got Michael Jordan's respect for the rest of his life, a respect that exists to this day. Steve Kerr is now a Hall of Fame coach, but he was hardly a Hall of Fame player, but he got Michael Jordan's trust because he didn't back down from Michael Jordan. And guys did back down from Michael Jordan, and they never got Jordan's respect. And they weren't part of six championship winning teams. Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan had their problems over the years in their personal relationship, and maybe even at times in their professional relationship. But Michael Jordan trusted Scottie Pippen. And when he really trusted Scottie Pippen, the Bulls won championships. When Scottie Pippen didn't trust Tony Kukoc or Phil Jackson in Michael Jordan's absence, Scottie Pippen was to a lot of his teammates a better leader than Michael Jordan because he didn't yell at his teammates as much as Michael Jordan. Right. But how many championships did they win when Michael Jordan Without was him? gone? Yeah. They had good teams. They sure they, they, they had a, a season or two where they won pretty much as many games as they had won with Michael Jordan. They just didn't win in the playoffs like they did when Michael Jordan was there. I find this Lakers situation fascinating because I, I do know a lot of Lakers fans. They're hard to miss, unfortunately. Uh, yes. you, we <laughs> yes. all know them. Yes. But but I, I I know them, and I've also been trying to put my finger on the pulse of that, that world a little bit and see where it falls on. And it is interesting because the blame for this series seems to fall on, for the most part, if you're a Lakers fan or you cover the Lakers, LeBron James. Which I find fascinating because I think LeBron James has, game in and game out, been the best player they've had. He's averaging 23.7 points, 10.3 assists, and 9.3 boards on 48.1% shooting in 41 minutes a game. I'm not sure what else you're supposed to ask for from a 38-year-old player. And uh, unlike Anthony Davis, he doesn't fall down as if he got hit by a Mack truck every time someone brushes against him. Uh, are, are there things to, to nitpick about that? Is he a star and expects star calls? Uh, yes, because his career has gone so long, 20 years in, that he started in a system where, well, of course, you're a star. You will get the foul more or less whenever you want the foul. Anthony Davis expects that treatment. LeBron James has, I think, adjusted and adapted for the most part. And I'm not sure there's a professional athlete with notable exception, I suppose, of Tom Brady, but the physical expectations are vastly different. That's aged in a better way. And I don't mean just sort of genetics. I mean understood as they get older how to alter their game. As LeBron James has. I, I could not be more impressed over the years with the way that he really, you know, he could always jump over people. He hasn't been that a long time. Uh, he's understood how to, to get, oh, continue to evolve his game as, as he's gotten older. And I think he's been outstanding in the series. I don't think he's been the problem. But to your Lakers fans that hear it, they look at the box scores and go, Davis has been good. It's it's LeBron's no, the problem. No, no. And well, I, I would, that's the problem with just looking. Yeah, and I would disagree. I think I think James has been better than Davis. Of course and he is. I'm not even sure it's all been all that close. And I think with all due respect to Rui Hachimura, who's had a nice game, Austin Reeves has been their third best player, and I'm not sure that's all that close. And it's just not enough. Uh, the Nuggets are having their way with the Lakers, especially with their top two guys. Jamal Murray now three games in, averaging a ridiculous 35 points per game on 52.1% shooting, and that includes 45.5 from three. 45.5 from three is also what Nikola Jokic is doing. He's shooting 52.6 from the field and averaging 27, and of course averaging a ridiculous triple-double in this series, 27, 14.7, 11.3. 
the Nuggets are shooting the lights out because the Lakers perimeter defense is terrible. This is just a far better team. But, but I, I'm just saying, even someone as usually sensible as Shaq O'Neal will get on TNT last night and say, no superstar should play as badly as Nikola Jokic played in Game 3. Shaq didn't watch Game 3, or if he did, he wasn't really paying attention because I can't believe that someone of his stature and intelligence would say something that stupid if he had really watched the game. But you know what he did? He looked at the box score. And what he saw, he may have even looked at the play-by-play. And he saw that Nikola Jokic didn't have good box score numbers in the first three quarters of the game. And Charles Barkley is sitting there and saying, are you, have you lost your mind? Right. He scored 15 in the first quarter. Murray scored 17 in the first quarter. Those two won the game. Murray set the tone. Jokic finished the Lakers off in the fourth quarter. Murray didn't score but seven points in the second half of that game. Was he bad in the second half and great in the first half? No, he needed to do what he did in the first half, at least in the first quarter, to keep the Nuggets in the game, right? And Jokic, in order for the Nuggets to win the game, had to be great in the fourth quarter, and he was at both ends of the floor. Jokic badly outplayed Anthony Davis in the fourth quarter, and I thought pretty much throughout the game. What didn't he do? Not a great shooting game. He's had at least two in this series that were below 50%, and I know we who watch Jokic all the time are shocked when he doesn't shoot 50%. But someone who doesn't really watch him, although he speaks kindly of him generally on the air, will say, well, and how could he have played well? He didn't shoot 50%. Right. No superstar plays as badly as that. And good for Barkley in looking at him and say, you're you're just wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you can get garbage points. Sure. You you can have... The points he got in the fourth quarter were meaningful points. Sure. Garbage time, in this case, did not start at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And the reality, and what's most impressive about the Nuggets in this series is that in two of the three games, they have been trailing in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've won all three. Won all three. It's been a the remarkable. The Lakers could be ahead two games to one if yeah. the Nuggets weren't the vastly superior mm-hmm. fourth quarter team in this One situation. might argue, given the size of the Lakers' leads in the fourth quarter, they arguably should be. But it, it well, is purely... That- yeah, their leads haven't been huge. Their 11-point lead in Game 2 was in the third quarter, but they were ahead in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. They were ahead in the fourth quarter in Game 3. Lost by 11. Got outscored down the stretch in the last nine minutes, 42 seconds, 33-21. to 26-14. As the game... Ended. It's one of the 26 reasons. Twenty-six to fourteen. I think this game might be very. Nuggets one-sided won by tonight. eleven. You do the math. They were behind by one. Ninety-four, ninety-three. Yep. Without that much time left in the game, they outscored the Lakers basically in the second half of the fourth quarter. Twenty-six to fourteen. Game four will be uh, tipping off at roughly uh, six thirty tonight out in L.A. The Nuggets have a chance to close it all out 
I want to know what you think. 303-831-1340, of course, is the number. Call and text. Uh, obviously, it's a, a very exciting time for the Nuggets, sort of unprecedented. The history says that this series is over. Uh, is there any reason to believe that it's not? Obviously, you kind of see where Sandy and I are at, but we'll break down a little bit more what the Nuggets have to do to make sure that they seal the deal tonight. We'll do that next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy, earlier this playoffs run, you, you brought up, I thought, a really, really important point that you can kind of feel it, you can kind of see it on the floor, that at any point in a playoff series, one team realizes they're not going to beat the other one. And for the Lakers, as they continued to watch Game 3 slip away, as they could do seemingly increasingly fewer things to stop it, I think that's what happened there. And you even saw from the Lakers, not this, we're going to come back, You know, we're going to buck history, we're going to be the first to go, You know, 149 teams haven't done it, we're going right. to be the first. No. You didn't hear that from no, Davis, no. you didn't even hear that from LeBron James. This team knows they're cooked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As every team does when they're down 0-3 in the NBA. Uh, Charles Barkley said last night on TNT, no team will ever come back from 0-3. Well, you know. That's There's always at much, some, point, some point a first time. Right. If Charles Barkley had said in my lifetime, no team will come back from 03. Um, if I were to say in my lifetime, no team will come back from 03. Well, I'd, I'd probably say that. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, somebody might. Um, but nobody has. And there have been, as you say, 149 right. Right? Uh, scenarios. And it hasn't happened once. Um. The Lakers out-rebounded the Nuggets in Game 3. They had more pain points than the Nuggets in Game 3. Game 3 was one of those math equations we talked about at the beginning of the Phoenix series. Remember when the Nuggets were making so many more threes than the Suns were? Right. They were making almost as many as the Suns were taking in in at least Game 1 and pretty much throughout the rest of the series. And we said that the Suns have a problem, and it's mainly a math problem. Right. <laughs> threes beat twos. And if you get beat by 20 points or more on the three ball, you're going to lose the game. And that's why uh, George Carl and uh, others have remarked that in this series, as is the case with a lot of series, there's transition defense, there's offensive rebounding, and there's a three ball. And if you're beaten in two of those three areas, you're probably going to lose. Uh, if you're beaten badly in two of the three areas and you might win the third narrowly, you're almost certainly going to lose. <laughs> almost certainly. Um, because the game was so ridiculously one-sided last night in Miami, uh, actually the Celtics finished the game with 11 offensive rebounds. I'll tell you how good the Heat were in the game last night. They won 128 to 102, game not nearly as close as that score might indicate. 
and they were out rebound eleven to one on the offensive boards. So he had one rebound on the offensive boards. One. They didn't need more than that. They were getting layups. They were getting threes, both contested and uncontested. Once they got rolling, they were like the Nuggets were in the first half of game one of the Lakers. They couldn't miss. Didn't matter where they took the shots from. I mean, Murray was hitting miracle shots. Jokic at the end of the third quarter hit a 40-footer. That went in seemingly as easily as a 10-footer from Jokic off one leg would have gone in. But the math problem for the Lakers in game three was that the Nuggets made 17 threes out of 41, and the Lakers made 10 out of 32. You do the math. That's mm-hmm. 21 points. How many did the Nuggets win by? 11. I mean, it's it become a three-point three shooting league. It's just that simple. Advantage with, it really has. With the three ball. And for better or for worse. That's, uh, you know, we knew that coming into the series. We knew that the Nuggets were 25th and the Lakers were 26th in three-point three attempts. But the Lakers weren't making threes as often as the Nuggets were in this series, as again further illustrated that. Uh, I was watching with a couple of friends the other night. LeBron made a couple in the third quarter, I believe. Made back-to-back threes, right? They were down seven, and all of a sudden, back-to-back threes are down one. And they would eventually go on and take the lead during the fourth quarter. And all three of us, when he made the two threes in a row, said, great, that means he'll keep shooting them. Right. And sure enough, he did, and he never made another one. Took a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Never made another one. And listen, LeBron's been valiant in this series, and once the Lakers got behind by double digits, you have to take the three ball. There's no choice. You can't come back with the two. Right. You need the three ball. But I think you you ask in this series, when did the Lakers know their goose was cooked? When the Nuggets scored 13 straight points in the fourth quarter. That's when the realization hit. We cannot beat them if they're playing well. Mm -hmm. If they're playing poorly and we're playing well, we have a chance to win maybe a game, maybe a game, probably not more than that. And I listen, I I thought Boston would win last night. I thought Miami would win game four, but I thought Boston would win last night. I did too. Because I thought that there would be some semblance of gumption that Boston would display some semblance of teamwork of caring about one another and not being willing to completely humiliate themselves and their coach and their organization all on the same night, but they were incapable of Mm -hmm. it. And there's a great line. uh, And I don't read novels. Uh, I must confess. I've never heard of this novel, but I was reading about it over the weekend. It's a Boston crime novel entitled Small Mercies. And for those of you listening who are into fiction, uh, Dennis Lehane is pretty well known. There's a line in the book. There are fighters and there are runners. And runners always run out of road. I don't know that the Lakers have quit as obviously as the Celtics have. Right. But the Celtics ran out of road. And the Celtics, man for man, who else has two all-NBA guys, first or second team? Boston, supposedly, in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, the two Jays, right? But they don't fit with each other, much less the rest of the team. They just score a lot of points. I get mine, then maybe you can get yours. Right. 
Truth. And they have a coach who's clearly overmatched. Who's admitted Miami, as much. Who's admitted he's lost the, the locker right. room. Well, it, you talk about delivering an advertisement for your own no, firing. It's your own epitaph, sure. But you know what? I give I give Joe Bazzula credit for just admitting it. He's like, look, well, the, guy, the guy's basically turned on me. What am well, I going to, you know? Yeah, he said he didn't get him ready. So, I mean, he, he that's said the standard. It, he said it he the right way. He took the blame. Then the players took the blame. And they're both off the hook that way. Right. Except he, Except he'll well, be fired. He, he will be fired, and not all of them will be fired. A lot of them might be, but not all of them. You know, Miami's got these guys, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, Duncan Robinson. They weren't drafted, including by Miami, for the, as, as far as that's all concerned. Miami didn't draft them either. But Miami brings them in. Vincent and Struess represent the starting backcourt. Mm-hmm. Robinson has been terrific in this series Robinson's off the bench. Average 12. Caleb Martin, 16 minutes. Caleb Martin is a guy any team in the league would want. 19. Coming off his bench right now in the series. And a lot of teams would start. Most teams in the league would start Caleb Martin. And if Kevin Love can't go, I don't know what, maybe Eric Spolstra is smarter than everybody because if Love can't go in the next game, maybe he doesn't start Caleb Martin. Maybe he continues to want to bring him off the bench and he finds, I don't know, Haywood Highsmith and puts him in the starting lineup and plays him for five or ten minutes the way they've been playing Kevin Love, injured or not, five or ten minutes in this series. That's a man who can coach. That's a man who can coach. And coaching isn't simply adding up championships. Coaching is saying, I got this team to max out. Give me all they had. The 2012-13 Nuggets didn't win a championship. In fact, they lost in the first round with home court advantage. And we have gone back many times through the years and analyzed that series, uh, increasingly with the knowledge that Golden State became a dynasty within two years with a different coach. But also realizing, you know what? That team maxed out. They won 57 games during the regular season. Tim Connolly himself came in the next year as the GM. He said that team didn't have any business winning 42 games, having a winning record. Only George Carl could have gotten 57 wins out of that team. Of all coaches in the league, only George Carl could have got 57 wins out of that particular team. They had the same team basically the next year as as they did the year before at the end of the season. Now, they had a different coach, too, who was basically incompetent. But how many games they win? A little more than half of 57. Give it to Pat Riley, by the way. Of course, still in this role. uh, When the Heat knock off the Celtics. That'll be his 19th finals as a player, a coach, or a general manager. Who who was good at all three? In In the history of the game, who was good at all three? I can think of one guy in particular, Riley's former teammate, who did all three, but as he himself acknowledged, he wasn't very good at one of them. And I'm thinking of Jerry West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not okay. a great coach. Right. Great player, Hall of Famer. If he hadn't been a Hall of Famer, he'd have been a Hall of Fame executive. By his own admission, he wasn't a particularly good coach. Now, 
you look at his coaching record, it's like Wade Phillips saying he wasn't a very good right. coach. But Wade Phillips is a pretty good coach, not a, but not a great coach. Jerry West was a much better coach than he would have you believe, but he wasn't a great coach. And it tore him up inside. Heck, even when he became an executive, he couldn't go to the playoff games. He didn't even like going to regular season games. It would tear him up inside. But, I mean, wrap, wrap your head around this. When the Heat get there, that's the 19th final for Pat Riley. Amazing. Amazing. That's 24.7% of every final. In the entire history of the NBA finals, yeah. one out of every four, Pat Riley's had a hand in. And Are he you entered kidding the me? league in, what, 1966? He was a senior at Kentucky when they lost to what was then called Texas Western. In that right. famous... Brown versus Board mm-hmm. of Education. Yeah, 1967 game, right? when he joined uh, San Diego he, Rockets. He joined for the 66-17 uh, season, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes, for the, the San Diego for the Rockets. Rockets. Yep. And later played with Elvin Hayes when they drafted Elvin Hayes. Seventh overall one. pick in the night. So 67-68. Seventh mm-hmm. overall pick. 67-7 draft. Okay. Yep. Um. So oh, wow. Uh. Yes. Um. Uh, and. You know, he was basically a reserve in the NBA, mm-hmm. uh, but but a pretty good guy coming off the bench. Um, you know, kind of a Christian Brown type, to be honest. And he was part of a team in Kentucky that was called Rupp's Runts. Small team. He's one of the bigger guys on on that team. I used to say in the in the mid nineties when. Riley had been fired by the Lakers, went to the Knicks. You know, he had written a book called The Winner Within. Mm-hmm. And I used to crack wise, or maybe not so wise, in saying that the winner within was having trouble getting out. That was the dry patch in the career of Pat Riley. And the problem I think he had in New York was the same problem he had, at least as far as he was concerned, when he was in Los Angeles. I think he has since looked back on that and said, maybe I got a little too big for my britches. In that finals, I, but, I just but gave that it a was the patch team. in which he did not win championships. He was the sixth man. He played this he played the sixth most minutes, he played the most minutes off the bench. I mean, he was the sixth man for the Lakers that year. So, significant role on a championship. Uh, team. On their championship team, yeah. which won thirty three games in a row. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, he was the guy. His main duty was to guard Jerry West in practice and beat West up to get West ready for the games. Now, I'm not sure I quite understand why Bill Sharman, a terrific coach, <laughs> right. thought it was necessary was a good idea. to beat on Jerry West in practice when Jerry West broke his nose about 47,000 times in his NBA career. I'm not sure it was necessary to rough him up to get him ready to play, but that was Pat Riley's job. At least, I'm sure Sharman wouldn't say, well, I didn't want Riley to beat him up, but I want Riley to challenge him, play him tough, play him tight, and that's his role on the team. And he and West were best friends when they were playing together. When they were working together, West as lead executive and Riley as coach, uh, they were not best friends. Yes. They, they, they were not. Both have said, to their credit since, it was my ego that made the relationship go bad. Both West and Riley have said that. And now you look at Riley and his executive accomplishments – if they don't match, Wes are pretty close because he's won titles as an executive. 
And you say, well, he won all those titles with the Lakers. Well, when he won a title with the Heat in 2006 with an over-the-hill Shaquille O'Neal mm-hmm. and Dwayne Wade in his prime, obviously, but Dwayne Wade was the leader of that team, not Shaq. When he won that title in 2006 as an underdog against favored Dallas in the finals, so that's a pretty good coaching job. That is a pretty good coaching job. You can't take that away from him. You can say in L.A. he had Hall of Famers. Right. And they were there before he was as the head coach. Kareem arrived years before Pat Riley was the head coach. Magic was drafted by Jerry West years before Riley became the head coach. Paul West had won a championship with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar before Pat Riley came on the scene. But in Miami, he built the team and he coached the team to its first championship and he's the lead executive on the championship teams they have had since and all the teams they've had, including this one, in the coming days in the NBA Finals. And has a heck of a relationship with an outstanding coach in Eric Spolstra. Now, let what some, does this let all some mean? Coach and let some speak. For the Nuggets, who have a, a, a coach in Michael Malone has been there for a while, less accomplished, a first-year GM in Calvin Booth, matching up those two. How have they continued to grow? We'll take a look at that next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets find themselves one game away from the NBA Finals. That's right. They are the prohibitive favorite in Vegas not, not to go to win. Just take that in for a minute because it's weird. We have to take it in for a second. But we just spent some time praising, and I think rightly so, Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley for the work they've done with Miami. Uh, I told everybody at the beginning of the playoffs, do not tell Jimmy Butler the odds. Going to be a problem. But anyway, the work that Calvin Booth and Michael Malone have done with the Denver Nuggets, I think when you look at the, the talent and the players, and the players are winning the games, and I get all of that. But Malone has evolved as a head coach even this far into his career, even this far into this tenure with the Denver Nuggets, I think that's impressive. And even though we've talked about it before, it's worth noting that Calvin Booth made the trades that Tim Connolly would not. And this team is, you cannot envision the Denver Nuggets being where they are without Contavious Caldwell-Pope, without Bruce Brown, without Christian Brown. And those are all three additions that only happen because Calvin Booth mm-hmm. is the general manager. So when you look at the performance that Booth had, and let, let's start let's start maybe with, we've talked about Booth, and I think it's a little easier to, to see what he's done. But Malone, this far into his career, has evolved and done, for the most part, the right things in this playoff run at a remarkably high rate, at a level we've never seen him do before as a head coach. Have you seen anything like this before? And are, are you as surprised as I am that this version of Michael Malone is so different than the one we saw even at this time last year? I think he needed, and this sounds like something easy to do, but it isn't. I think he needed to strike a balance between 
having the right people on the floor at the right times and getting out of the way, holding them accountable, but not nitpicking their every mistake. And I think as the playoffs have gone on, he's found that balance. Now, the first-round series is a mismatch, and a lot of people would have been just as successful as Malone was in coaching the Nuggets past the Minnesota Timberwolves. But the second round was a little more of a challenge, and certainly in games three and four, you had Booker and, to an extent, Durant, presenting problems for the Nuggets. And they solved those problems. And they solved those problems in no small part due to Malone's efforts. More than solved the problems, uh, actually, uh, they made Booker and Durant at times into liabilities, in part because they had to do more than they should have been asked to do, but especially Booker but also in part because Malone figured out how to throw different things at them. He started pressuring Booker, making Booker work harder just to get the ball off the floor. Uh, The Nuggets played at a pace that I think made them more comfortable in four of the six games. The two games in Phoenix, they they learned from that. Uh, they plugged some of the defensive leaks that were there in games three and four. And, of course, in this series, they haven't lost a game, so you could hardly find fault with them. Um, I, I thought in, in the first game, there might have been some vulnerability exposed, even though the Nuggets won the game. I didn't think the Lakers were devastated by that loss, but gradually in games two and three, the Nuggets showed they have all kinds of different ways to beat you. And he's given them that chance. And when certain guys have not done what they're supposed to do, he's gotten them out of the ball game. And you you see as the playoffs have gone on, uh, the old Riley line, play eight, U seven, trust six. I think that's pretty much where Malone is. And they have six effective starters, including the five who actually do open the game and Bruce Brown, who gets starters minutes uh, virtually every night. He got 29 the other night, could have played more. He had 37, I think, in the previous game, 37 minutes of game action. And Brown has been utilized beautifully uh, throughout the season, I would say, by Malone and Bruce Brown, Bruce Brown, even during the regular season, although he had some dry patches, uh, I thought that he was one of the three or four guys who could have been, should have been seriously considered as six man of the year because he, he does a little bit of everything. He's a six, four guy with a six, nine wingspan. So, and there's another guy who plays a lot better than his box score oh, numbers, yeah. which were actually pretty good the other night, 15, five and five with a steal plus six and 29 minutes, fine box score numbers. But you know what? He was better than that. In sections of the game where they couldn't count on Murray to do all the scoring or Jokic to do all the scoring or all the playmaking, they had Bruce Brown. And Bruce Brown would go end-to-end and create offense for himself and for others. I mean, he had five assists, five rebounds, along with the 15 points. And they were efficiently earned. Uh, he's not a guy who takes 20 shots to get 15 points. 
He's not going to come in and start firing from all places on the court. He's going to fit in with the other four, and he's going to give them what they need, what they haven't been getting when he comes in, and he usually comes in when about six minutes, five minutes to go in the first quarter. And he'll look at what they need, and he will provide. And you can't ask anything more from a six-man. Some six men come in and give you offense, instant right. offense, they call it. But, you know, the first sixth man I ever knew of that I was old enough to watch, because Frank Ramsey was a little before my time with the Boston Celtics, he was the original Boston six man, was, of course, the late, great John Havlicek. Right. Who early in his career came off the bench, especially after Bill Russell retired. He wasn't coming off the bench. He was playing 44, 45 minutes a night, and he was arguably in the late 60s, early 70s, the best player in the NBA. Better than West at that time, Better, much better than Oscar at that time. An all-time great player, in my opinion. A guy you could put in anywhere. The ultimate swing player, the ultimate sixth man. He was a great defender. He handled the ball well enough to be a guard. He shot it well enough to be three-point line back then. Right. He'd have been a three-point threat. Great, great play. Bruce Brown is a lower scale, John Havlicek. In, in as much as he gives you what you need as opposed to any particular thing, that there are guys, for example, when, when Bones Highland was getting bigger minutes, Bones Highland was there to generate points, scoring. That's what he's there for. That's what a lot of six men are there for. That's okay. That's normal. But you're right. Brown's that's one of the reasons I've been a, a fan of Bruce Brown prior to him joining the Denver Nuggets is because he's a guy that brings you what you need. Uh, he can play your backup point guard if you have to. He'll give you energetic defense. He can score. He can score by shooting from the outside. He can drive. He can dunk. He can go get rebounds. He gives you what you need. He is the guy that... Give me another Bruce. Uh, Bruce Lee famously said when he talked about hmm. being water. That you pour water in a in a cup, it takes the shape of a cup. You pour water into a into a pitcher, it takes the shape of the pitcher. That's what Bruce Brown does. Yeah. Well, what do they need today? Well, that's what mm-hmm. Bruce Brown will do, and that's what makes him so valuable. And that's why uh, yeah, I don't want to get ahead of it, but the Denver Nuggets have to find out a way to retain him. He is he has a player option at the end of this year. He's probably not going to accept it because he's going to get at least twice as much what he's made this year. <laughs> but the Nuggets need to find a way to make him work because he is as critical as any of their starters to this I agree. On the bright the side... The Nuggets say they have six starters. He's on the right. team right now, and they're lucky to have him. Uh, we have an opportunity, by the way, uh, if you want to go catch the game, if you haven't had an idea of where you're going to go, well, we're going to be throwing a watch party tonight with our friends at Denver Stiffs over at Sportsbook uh, down on Highlands Ranch. So uh, we'll break down the game, and we'll talk about the uh, the watch party with uh, Mile Life Sports... Uh, Main man, head honcho, big chief, the big cheese, whatever you want to call it. Nate Lundy, he joins us next on Miles Sports. So everything beautiful. 